Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 18 of the Essential x Lapsed, where we are post-Magneto. We're going to be meeting some new threats, some new foes, some new friends. It's a... It's an exciting time to be, isn't it? Um, let's get right into it. This is X-Men number 12, had a July 1965 cover date. Story is called The Origin of Professor X. Written and edited by Stan Lee, layouts Jack Kirby, pencils Alex Toth, inks Vince Coletta, letters Sam Rosen, and colors... Well, maybe someone who might not want the credit this time out. Cover price, 12 cents American, and let's hop right in. Now... We pick up right where we left off last issue. If you remember, Cerebro was pinging like a son of a gun. Now Cyclops and Xavier are there trying to, I don't know, panic with dignity, I guess? And then the X-Men barge back into the office. Now Cyclops freaks out, because the other X-Men weren't supposed to know about Cerebro. And he plays it really cool, though. He says, hey, stay out, all of you. No one is supposed to know about the Professor's Cerebro machine. Real smooth there, Slim. Now, Xavier, he's he's cool with them knowing, or so he claims. Well, I suppose if he actually had a problem with it, he would uh, he would have already taken them on a one-way trip to Mindwipe City, right? Anyway, at this point, Beast or Angel asks what the Cerebro machine does. We can't tell which one of them it is. They're mostly off-panel. It's just like their head. I'm going to guess that it's Angel asking the question. Now, Xavier shares how the cerebral sausage is made. Uh, you know, the whole thing about finding mutants and whatnot. But he says that this is a different sort of cerebro reaction. Uh, this one depicts a menace of indescribable power. And he instinctively knows who this must be. And so he dispatches the X-Men to booby-trap the lawn before the baddie can arrive. So, we go outside... And I suppose instead of our obligatory danger room scenario, this will be the scene where the kids get to show off their powers. Now, Kid Cool sets up a thick ice shield around the perimeter of the school. Cyclops burns a moat or a trench around the school's walls. Beast runs a wire through that trench. Now, he's holding the spool with his feet, because I suppose that's the only way they can depict him as having uncanny powers in this situation. Jean then uses her TK to cover the trench with leaves and lawn debris, so... Yeah, she's basically raking. Angel then picks up some logs, which Cyclops hollows out with his optic blasts, and then they jam these hollowed-out logs upright into some holes in the lawn, which Angel then drops grenades into. Oi. <laughs> um, now, this entire endeavor takes the team five minutes, and I swear I've been describing it longer than that. Um, now, once done, they report back to the professor. It's at this point where Xavier reveals that this newest menace is... Well, not an evil mutant, but his own evil stepbrother. Okay, so Cerebro can just detect any old bad guy now? I, I guess we'll allow it, not that we have much choice. Now, Cyclops is shocked to learn this, which facilitates part one of Xavier's trip into flashback land. Now, his story begins with an atomic blast that occurred years ago at a lab in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Now, this is the blast that would kill his father, Brian Xavier. Oddly enough, this Alamogordo blast was the subject of my very first issue of X-Men, X-Men Volume 2, Number 13. Makes me wonder if maybe there's like a top-secret hazard cameo in this issue. And I'd have mixed feelings about that, because if there was, that would mean I no longer own his first appearance. And, uh, you know, I, I gotta have Hazard's first appearance. Anyway, we pick up at Brian Xavier's funeral, where Charles's mother Sharon is approached by Brian's old lab partner, Kurt Marco. 
Now Charles doesn't trust Kurt and wonders how he was able to escape this blast when his father couldn't. Now it's worth noting, this is, if I'm not mistaken, the first time Professor X's first name of Charles is revealed to the reader. Anyway, Kurt manages to weasel his way into Sharon's life, and in suggesting that Charles needs a father, somehow convinces her to marry him. And uh, he's such a nice guy that he even agrees to move into the Xavier mansion as to keep Charles comfortable. Well, then that just beat all. What a guy. Now, Kurt was clearly only into this relationship to get his hands on the Xavier wealth, and he's not even all that shy about admitting it. He's a horrible husband and a rotten stepfather. And then his son from his first marriage comes to live with him, and that, of course, is Cain. Now, Cain Marco is one ugly mug, uh, definitely like the, the no-nose mook stock character that we see a lot in the Silver Age. Uh, no sooner does he burst in the door than he reveals himself to be quite the a-hole. He biffs Charles in the head within seconds of meeting him. Back to the present, and Cerebro is screaming. Angel wonders what the big deal is. Kane Marco doesn't have any powers or anything, so it should be a cinch to take care of him. And by now, it's worth noting, Kane has reached Bobby's ice wall, and as always, he just smashes his way through it. The ice wall is is not effective. Um, now, the entire school begins to shake from the impact here, and a chandelier nearly crushes Jean, who was only protected by a makeshift Iceman igloo. So, while the X-Men look at the hulking monster who is stomping across their lawn at present, Xavier decides it's time to pop back into Flashback Land to continue his tale of woe. Now, his recollection jumps ahead a little bit. By now, his mother Sharon has died of a broken heart, which means that his inheritance is now controlled solely by Kurt Marco. He eavesdrops on a conversation between Kane and Kurt, wherein the former accuses the latter of being responsible for Brian Xavier's death back in Alamogordo. Kurt denies it and grabs his son by the collar. By now, Charles barges in, revealing that he heard the entire conversation, which is to say he heard a wild accusation and a denial. So, you know, not much. Um, Charles asks for some clarification, to which Kane grabs a bunch of combustible test tubes and smashes them into one another, causing an explosion and fire. <sighs> Kane and Charles are KO'd by the blast. Kurt manages to grab both boys and carry them to safety, but dies right after. Now, his last words to Charles confirm that the explosion at Alamogordo was, in fact, an accident, though he does admit that he might have been able to save Brian. He just didn't. Also, he warns Charles to beware of Cain and alludes to the fact that Charles got himself an extra ability. And even Charles doesn't realize this just yet. Now, we go back to the present, and the jug, um, our new baddie, <clears throat> has made it to the electrified moat, and it doesn't stop him from trudging ever forward. It does manage to slow him down long enough for Xavier to continue his flashback, though, and uh, so we go right back into it. Xavier recalls discovering his mutant ability, which he blames on some ancient island which was split into two by a giant sword, and then half of that island was shoved into an interdimensional chasm. Uh, okay, okay, no, maybe not. He blames it on the radiation that his parents were exposed to while working on the nukes. He claims that the only outward sign that he was different was the fact that his hair fell out while he was a teenager. And hey, uh, my hair turned pretty much completely gray when I was a teenager. Maybe I've got some sort of mutant ability. Hmm, maybe. Now we see Charles succeeding in basically everything he attempts, due largely to his extra powers. He gets great grades, he's great at sports, and as such, he kind of withdraws himself from any sort of competitive endeavor, fearing that he's 
subconsciously cheating. He does manage to bring home dozens of trophies, though, before throwing in the towel. And this gets under Kane's skin big time. Kane proceeds to destroy Charles's trophies, and Charles socks him in the face. Kane calls him a creepy punk, which is accurate, and perhaps a sign that Kane himself has some mental abilities. Speaking of which, Xavier then uses his mind-reading ability to know what Kane's next move is going to be, and so he deftly dodges a chop and goes ahead and delivers one of his own to the back of Kane's head, which knocks him out. Back to the present, the X-Men seem reassured that Kane isn't any match for their X-Powers, and yeah, they call them X-Powers. Uh, Iceman wonders why he's such a big deal, to which Xavier tells him that he ain't done telling his story just yet and quit interrupting. And so, back to flashback land. Kane and Charles are driving to college. Well, Kane is driving Charles there anyway. Kane is driving erratically, which winds up driving them right off a cliff. Now, as they tumbled, Xavier used his abilities to help Kane leap to safety, but he himself remained in the hoopty. In the present, the kids are all like, Oh, so that is how you lost the use of your legs. To which he asks them why they haven't yet read issue 9 of this series, because I thought that was all explained. Now, by now, the big bad has pulled himself out of the moat or trench gimmick, and he's approaching the grenade logs. Once triggered, they burst in his face, expelling sleep gas, which as you might imagine, proves to be useless. He then reaches the second row of grenades, which are a little more effective, if only for obscuring his vision with clouds of smoke. Iceman, at this point, reinforces one of the shattered windows of the school with a sheet of ice. And Beast, he wonders just what it is that makes this Marco tick. And so, back into flashback land we go. Now, Kane and Charles were serving in the Korean War. Kane deserted under fire and found his way into a cave. Now, Charles rushed in after him to try and talk some sense into him, and uh, it was inside this cave that uh, Cain happened across the Lost Temple of Sidorak. He touches the Crimson Gem, bada-bing, bada-boom, whosoever touches this gem, yada, 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 and we got us a juggernaut. The cave collapsed. Xavier escaped. Though he remained worried what should happen should Cain ever manage to free himself, which, you know, brings us to right now. So Xavier left... <laughs> his stepbrother, to, uh, to die under this, uh, this cave-in. In the present, Xavier has the teens raise the steel inner wall of the school. Not sure why they waited until he was literally at their doorstep to do this, but whatever. I suppose it does give us some late-in-the-issue action, right? And also comedy, because uh, Warren, Bobby, and the Beast all rush off to be the one that erects the steel, and they crash into each other as though they were the Three Stooges. So anyway, the steel wall is up. But the visitor just proceeds to pound his way through. Iceman puts up yet another ice wall, both to protect the team and also, you know, put another obstacle between they and their visitor. And as you might figure, uh, he punches his way through that as well. Cyclops takes aim and blasts the baddie, but his beam just bounces off. And we wrap up with the Juggernaut confronting his stepbrother and vowing that this will be the last time that their paths cross. Next time out, we will wrap up our two-part Juggernaut story. Now, before we hop into the letters page here, I figured uh, maybe do like a mini fake-ass comics history here on uh, a little sit-a-rackiness here. Um, go to Strange Tales, number 128, September 1964, cover date. Stories called The Mystery of the Lady from Nowhere by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Now, this is a Doctor Strange story featuring... A woman from nowhere who appears to be in a trance. Now, wanting to know more, Strange checks in with the Ancient One, who sends him back in time. 
he discovers that this woman was sent to the present from the past by a scorned ex-lover. Now, using the, quote, crimson bands of Sidorak, Doctor Strange is able to lift the spell and free the woman from the trance. She's revealed to have been Cleopatra. Now, it's a silly enough story, but worth noting for us that it's the first ever mention of Sidorak in Marvel Comics, and uh, used in quite the strange way uh, compared to what we know about it from this point on. From here, let's hop into the letters page here. We're going to start... Uh, these these letters are <laughs> a little bit annoying. Um, we're going to start with Marlene in Illinois. She's a student of evolution, and she hated the way it was depicted in X-Men number 10, which, of course, was the Savage Land issue. She says it made her cry. She asked Stan how much research he did on this story. And, I mean, come on, it's a friggin' comic book where teenagers stumble across a dinosaur world in the middle of the Antarctic. Uh, what kind of research can one hope to do for this? Anyway, I guess Stan bonered a bit here by mixing prehistoric periods. As Marlene puts it here, the... Eophippus couldn't have possibly existed alongside the pterodactyl. But also, um, they probably... Could, they, I mean, they couldn't possibly have lived in 1965, right? But that's beside the point. She goes into even greater detail, but I, I think we've poked enough fun at this one already. Now, uh, Stan responds in Stan fashion, claiming that he was too fixated learning how to spell the eras that he didn't bother to dig any deeper. He asked for a mea culpa, claiming that they were just proud that they remembered to include Iceman's booties this time out, which, I mean, that's just an awesome, awesome stand reply there. And such a silly complaint, too. I mean, oh well, let's keep going. We got Tim in Tasmania. He says he loves the X-Men and says they're almost as good as the Fantastic Four, which kind of sounds like an insult. He uh, wants Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch to join the X-Men. He wants Marvel Girl to get more action. And he loves Kirby's work on X-Men, but says he needs to tighten up his pencils on Spider-Man. Whoops. <laughs> now, Stan informs Tim that the king doesn't draw Spidey. Patrick in Ohio loves Kazar, wants to see more of him. And he then criticizes Stan for mixing up prehistoric eras. Man, comic fans were always the smartest people in the room, weren't they? <clears throat> Stan apologizes, uh, confirming that uh, he couldn't find the Savage Land in any textbook to, uh, to double-check any of that information, which is another great Stan answer. Raymond in Pennsylvania. Now, he's happy that Marvel revived another Golden Age hero in Kazar. Now, Kazar, a, a different Kazar, first appeared in Marvel Comics number 1 way back in 1939. Uh, this was a fellow named David Rand, who I believe was more of like a total Tarzan riff, right? I mean, even their names are similar. Now, Stan replies that all he remembers of the Golden Age version was the name, which they decided to keep. As for everything else, Stan saith, I can't remember another blessed thing about him. I mean, he's, he's honest, and that's a, that's a good thing. Pete in Maryland. He loved X-Men issues 4, 6, 7, and 10. So I guess uh, 5, 8, and 9 can suck it. Uh, he likes Beast the best of all. And he likes the Brotherhood. He'd like to see them fight the Fantastic Four. He'd really like to know what Magneto looks like under Wolverine's toilet. And he wants to know if it's Submariner or Submariner. Stan confirms it's Submariner, which breaks, you know, 12-year-old Chris's heart. And he says he doesn't know what Magneto looks like under his helmet because they've never drawn him without it. So I guess uh, Pete's guess is as good as Stan's. Jonathan in the Bronx. No prize alert. No prize alert. Stan asks the fans why Bobby doesn't slip on his own ice slides. 
Now, Jonathan posits that Kid Cool can do so by controlling the temperature of the bottom of his feet. And that's good and scientific enough for Stan, so congratulations on your no-prize Jonathan. Marty in Manhattan. He loves Marvel and thinks they're the best. He says he's often asked that, uh, while as a 17-year-old, why he still reads comics. Ouch. Uh, Now, his reply to these uh, folks is that people enjoy hero stories and the idea of rescuing damsels from villains. Which is not a very current year statement now, is it? Finally, we have Walter in California. He can find no faults in the Savage Land issue, so I guess old Walt is not a student of paleontology. Uh, Loves Kazar and wants to see more dinosaurs in Marvel mags. Well, Stan scoffs at having to remember how to spell all of their names and suggests that if Kazar were to come back, he'll either be a Coney Island lifeguard or a locker room attendant at the Y. So those are the letters, and I swear I love the letters so much. They're, uh, they're so much fun to do these. Uh, just love being able to take the temperature of the uh, fandom of the day. It's uh, a lot of fun, a lot of fun, and uh, some of my favorite stuff to, to do and share. Uh, from here, we got our proto-bullpen bulletins, and we got some announcements. Uh, eight Marvel annuals will be hitting during the summer of 65. We got Fantastic Four, which we will be covering in depth during episode 20 of this show. Uh, Spider-Man Thor, Sergeant Fury, Marvel Tales, Kid Cult Outlaw, Millie the Model, and Patsy Walker's Fashion Parade. And uh, all of these will feature new stories as well as reprint material. In other news, uh, Strange Tales is bringing Nick Fury into the present with Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. And it's being printed in extra-large supply, but uh, rush to your newsstand anyway so you don't miss out. Next up, the mighty, mighty Marvel checklist here. Uh, books coming out this month include Fantastic Four number 41, which features the brutal betrayal of Ben Grimm and the Inhumans. <clears throat> Spider-Man 27, The Secret of Frederick Foswell, and uh, he is, of course, spoiler alert, the big man. Avengers number 18, Avengers vs. the Commies. Thor number 117, which is listed as Thor number 18, and in it, Thor fights someone, naturally. Strange Tales 135 introduces, as mentioned, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Tales of Suspense 68 features Iron Man and Captain America doing stuff. Astonish, number 70, Namor and the Hulk, do stuff. And finally, in Sergeant Fury, number 20, the Howlers versus Baron Strucker and the Blitz Squad, again. So that, my friends, was X-Men number 12. What'd you all, uh, what'd you all think about that one here? Uh, I gotta say, it is refreshing to have a threat that isn't Magneto. Um, as much as I love Magneto, and I mean, we all love Magneto... It was getting a little bit played out, wasn't it? So this is a real, real nice breath of fresh air. And, uh, I mean, just the entire story, the way it was set up, was was very different from what we'd usually get here. Um, this actually felt kind of like, uh, like the first part of a two-part sitcom or something, right? We've got our characters assembled at the house. We got uh, some action. We got some comedy. We got flashbacks. We have a threat looming that's... Uh, going to be paying off here. We got familial drama. We got a little bit of soapiness, right? A little bit of soapiness, which would, you know, go on to become a hallmark of the X-Men uh, family of books here. Really fun story. And I, I know I had a little bit of fun with it because, uh, I mean, these stories invite that, right? They are just a lot of fun, but also there's a, there's a lot to have fun with here. Um, I mean, one of my main takeaways from this is like... Uh, Xavier's kind of a jerk, right? I mean, uh, Kitty wasn't lying when she said it. 
And I mean, that's not to say I'm, you know, Team Kane or anything, because he's he's pretty awful too. But leaving him to perish in a cave-in uh, was uh, maybe not so heroic. <laughs> not a very redeemable thing to do, leaving your stepbrother to perish, no matter you know what a knob he might be. It's uh, still eh, not a heroic thing. And according to this issue, it took Kane years, years to dig himself out of there. So. Uh, yeah, a little bit a little bit crazy. Almost heroic in and of itself, right? We could look at the Juggernaut as being uh, the hero of this story for being able to save his own life. What else we got? Um, I'm still not entirely clear on why uh, Cerebro started pinging when Kane was a-coming, unless I suppose we probably could explain it away, that uh, Xavier had put his evil stepbrother's DNA into Cerebro or some sort of a, uh, I don't know, findability measure. So if his wicked stepbrother were ever to resurface, Cerebro would pick up on him, mutant or not. Uh, is that enough to get a no prize? I, I don't know. Oh, and by the way, the, uh, the more we go into these letters pages, um, I can almost promise you you're going to be tired of hearing the word no prize because boy it's like they grow on trees as often as they're given out or asked for it's a it's going to become a thing <laughs> i'm pretty sure oh i know we could talk about the art uh this is uh i think this is the first issue where jack kirby is not on pencils and instead is just doing layouts and we have alex toth here on art who uh i have some familiarity with uh i wouldn't say that i'm any sort of Alex Toth historian or uh, base of knowledge, but I, I enjoy his work. I think it's very good here. I think it's going to be interesting to see how this is received in the letters pages later on, since the Kirby art is uh, kind of a contentious subject among the letter hacks of the day here. I mean, just just a few episodes ago, we had people claiming that Kirby wasn't even an artist, right? And then we've got others that say nobody but Kirby could do any comics. So it, uh, I think... The, the tothiness of this issue might come back up in the letters pages. I can only hope. Overall, I had a really good time with this one. Um, gave us a little bit of like a, a looming horror story, right? Um, very slow-moving, plotting villain who is just a, a monster. And uh, if I remember right, I think next issue really, really ramps up that sort of vibe here. We're going to have Juggernaut like slowly stalking the team just as... The unstoppable force that he is, but uh, really just taking his time and having fun just prowling and uh, and stalking the uh, good guys. So I'm really looking forward to that, and I hope you guys are as well. But I think that'll do it for today. Uh, before we get out of here, though, and before I give the contact information, I just want to say something about a review I just received on uh, Apple Podcasts here. I wasn't going to mention it on this show. I was going to save it for the main show since uh, even as few people as listen to the main show, it's it's more than what listen to the essentials here, but I figured I'd at least mention it. I got a one-star review for my negativity, and uh, that's kind of bizarre to me because usually I'm called out for being too positive or too forgiving on these books, but uh, maybe this... Uh, Maybe this person listened to an episode where I talked about X-Corp or something. I don't know. But um, I just wanted to say that, you know, I do end every single episode with ways to contact me, including a voicemail hotline. If my opinions don't line up with yours, rest assured that I am just an idiot with a microphone and uh, someone who is lucky enough to have a family who is patient enough to allow me to spend 
a couple of hours a day talking into it. My opinions are no more valuable than yours, and your opinions are no more valuable than mine. They are what they are. And if they don't line up, that's okay. And I invite you to enter into a dialogue here. And if you've listened to this show more than once, you'll know that I usually second-guess my opinions more than I second-guess anybody's opinions. And I always, always welcome dissenting opinions. In fact, I look look forward to dissenting opinions because I want to discuss things. I want to analyze things. I want to take things to another level. The entire point of this show isn't for me to get, like, comps from Marvel. It's not for me to get retweets from Teeny Howard or Jonathan Hickman. It's to start a conversation and have a conversation with friends. Whether we agree or disagree, it really doesn't matter, as long as we're having a fun conversation about comic books. If I can open your eyes to something, or if you can open my eyes to something, well, that's what it's all about, right? If if you love X-Corp, I disagree. (laughs) If you don't like Way of X or Hellions, again, I, I disagree, but we're allowed to disagree. So... This is going out to anybody here. If if the person who gave me this review is is somehow still listening, this goes to you as well. Before you run off and try to hurt my show, the thing that I spend so much time, effort, passion, and love on, before you go and do that, maybe shoot me an email and we can talk about this stuff when our opinions don't line up. I love having those conversations. Those are some of the funnest things to do when we when we disagree and we can actually Try to see things through someone else's prism. That's, that's the fun part of being part of a community, being part of a silly little book club talking about comic books. And I mean, we all have our biases, which is usually why I preface many of my complaints with, this might just be a Chris problem. That's acknowledgement that I am just an idiot with my own biases, and uh, that my opinion is not an all-inclusive, it's not a blanket statement, it's not something that represents anybody but me. So I guess I'll just wrap up there just uh, by asking if anybody has a problem with any of my opinions here, do me the kindness of reaching out and entering into a discussion so we can talk about these things rather than running off to a review aggregate where you can actually do harm to this project that I have invested thousands of hours into. But with all that said, I think we are done here for today. Uh, As I mentioned, I think, during the Pride of the X-Labs episode, and if you listen to that one, I do appreciate it, I'm thinking about Deep Six and the uh, the social media for a bit here. It's uh, really not doing me mental health much good. So uh, until a firm decision's made on that, you can find me there on Twitter at Ace Comics. Uh, You can give a call to the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK, which, I mean... Doesn't that say a thing or two about what I feel about my opinions and my uh, position as a uh, as an authority in this field? Uh, also, you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can also head over to Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. Finally, chrisandreggie.podbean.com for all the noise. And uh, as much as I hate to ask if, uh, if anybody out there would like to counteract a one-star review, <laughs> I would love for you to do so on iTunes. It would really, really mean the world to me. But that is where we'll leave it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for continuing to allow me to be a part of your day every so often. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>